0: Our feature who is here with me is Jacqueline Dowd-Hall. She has accomplished so much as a historian that it's going to take a little while to introduce her. She is currently the Julia Cherry Spruill Professor Emerita at UNC Chapel Hill. She was recognized with the National Humanities Medal for her work as the founding director of the Southern Oral History Program. It deepened the nation's engagement with the humanities by recording history through the lives of ordinary people. She is the author or co-author of prize-winning books and articles, including Revolt Against Chivalry, Jesse Daniel Ames and the Women's Campaign Against Lynching, Like a Family, the Making of a Southern Cotton Mill World, and to cite just one of her articles, The Long Civil Rights Movement and the Political Uses of the Past, published in the Journal of American History in 2005 past president of the Organization of American Historians and the Southern Historical Association, as well as the founding president of the Labor and Working Class History Association. She is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and has held numerous fellowships. Today she will talk about her book, Sisters and Rebels, A Struggle for the Soul of America. It has received almost as many awards as she has personally, I'm not gonna list them all, but you can go look them up and hopefully you'll be buying the book so you can read it yourself. Today, she will take us along the divergent paths of three sisters, descendants of a slaveholding family who grew up in a culture of white supremacy. Welcome Jacqueline.
1: Thank you, Maria. I'm delighted to be here. So um, as you uh, said, This book weaves together the lives of three sisters who were born into a former slave owning family at the end of the 19th century and steeped in devotion to white supremacy and the cult of the lost cause. Like the rest of us, they did not get to choose the family in the place they were born into. But they did have a choice about how to reckon with that legacy. And this book is about how the ties of sisterhood were tested and frayed as each uh, wrestled with her upbringing in her own way. Elizabeth Lumpkin, the oldest, was a wildly popular orator on the Confederate Veterans Reunion Circuit. In the 1920s, Grace Lumpkin, became a radical novelist focused on the working women of the South. Catherine Dupree Lumpkin, the youngest, is the moral center of the book. She's best known for her autobiography, The Making of a Southerner, in which she traced her indoctrination into the culture of white supremacy and then took her readers step by step, the process by which she unlearned everything she had been raised to believe. In Sisters and Rebels, I focus on the historical context and the impact of these women's activism and creative and intellectual work. I show the sisters in implicit, if not Uh, literal conversation with one another and with uh, larger, real and imagined communities. And I consider how their lives unfolded in interaction with others, with allies, friends and lovers. And uh, some of the most influential of those figures um, are key characters in the book. Spir- spiraling outward from those dense networks, I thread the sisters' lives through almost a century of historical events, um, movements, and debates. I begin with the myth of the lost cause. This um, alternative, uh, fabricated reality did not. Uh, reflect history as it happened, rather it uh, romanticized slavery and reconfigured the Civil War as not as a struggle to preserve slavery, but as a struggle to uh, uphold the principle of state's rights. Through Elizabeth, I show how the Lost Cause advocates stamped their understanding of Southern history on the white collective memory of the nation, and did so so effectively that we are arguing about the meaning of the Confederate monuments they erected as we speak. Through Grace's literary offerings, I illuminate the struggles of working women, as well as the work of women writers who were committed to representing those struggles. Through Catherine, I lift up an interracial student movement based in uh, faith and faith rooted in faith-based activism. I also center the left wing of uh, the women's movement. And I track the beginnings of an ongoing tradition of autobiography in which white southerners reckon with the Uh, implication of race and racism in their own lives. The history-making efforts of Grace, Catherine, and their circles were stymied in the 1950s by the uh, tragic reversals of the Red Scare, represented most famously by Joseph McCarthy, but perpetrated by an astonishing array of governmental and non-governmental actors. McCarthyism, like Trumpism, thrived on chaos and conspiracy theories by whipping up fears of communist subversion. It turned the sisters earlier pro-civil rights, pro-labor, social democratic ideals and alignments, into sinister un-American activities and wrecked intimate and long-lasting habit on personal lives and American political culture. I write in some detail about this tragic denouement, but I end the book at the hopeful open door of the women's and civil rights movements of the sixties and seventies, which took up many of the causes, the Lumpkin sister, to which the Lumpkin sisters were devoted. So I'll turn now to how I got interested in these women in the first place, to how I wrote this book and to some of the things that I learned along the way. And I'll end with how the sisters' stories speak to the present to the challenges that we face today. So I first read Catherine's autobiography a very long time ago. I read it in the early 70s. I was uh, a graduate student living in Atlanta and immersed in the city's feminist civil rights, uh, anti-war counterculture, but trying to write a dissertation at Columbia University in the then brand new field of women's history. I, uh, Catherine's portrait of the South scarred by slavery, but rich in a history of progressive struggle resonated with how I saw the region. And I felt a strong connection between my generation of dissident Southerners and her depression era Generation of activist intellectuals. Still, I was puzzled by the book. Uh, I wondered about Catherine's sister, Grace, who also uh, threw off the teachings of her upbringing and tried to remake the South. In her time, she was the more famous of the sisters, and yet she doesn't appear in Catherine's memoir at all. For that matter, What about Catherine herself? This is an autobiography, and yet it ends when she is still in her 20s and in the 1920s, finishing a master's degree at Columbia University and returning to lead uh, an interracial student movement in the segregated South. What about her later life? What about her doctorate in Uh, labor economics and sociology at the University of Wisconsin? What about her uh, career as her effort to to, uh, create a career as a scholar and a writer at a time when women who aspired to intellectual lives faced soul-crushing obstacles? What about the decades she spent outside the South, building a vibrant domestic and political life with in partnership with Dorothy Douglas, a radical economist at Smith College, and the former wife of the prominent senator, Paul Douglas. I later learned that in the mid-1920s, Grace had decamped to New York and settled on the Bohemian. Lower East Side. She rose to fame with the publication of her first book, To Make My Bread, about the legendary Gastonia, North Carolina strike of 1929. By the 1930s, she was, as she put it, a warm fellow traveler of the communist party. She was also married to her live-in lover, a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe, a militant fur and leather worker with literary aspirations. Both she and her husband were deeply and in Grace's case fatally involved with Whitaker Chambers. Chambers was known in the 1920s as the quote hottest literary Bolshevik in New York. But by the 1950s, he became, in the 1950s, he became uh, one of the most influential anti-communist writers of his time. As the progressive movements of the 30s and 40s gave way to McCarthyism and the Cold War, Grace Lumpkin reversed course entirely Like Quittaker Chambers, she joined a pack of former leftists who gained enormous influence by turning to the right. And she spent the last decades of her life denouncing her former allies and renouncing her own best work. When I moved to North Carolina in 1973 to launch UNC's Southern Oral History Program, I jumped at the chance to seek the sisters out. Elizabeth had died a decade earlier, but I found Catherine and Grace in Virginia, to which both had retired uh, separately and, and, and for different reasons. My conversations with them were mesmerizing, but again, as in Catherine's autobiography, there was so much that was left unsaid. And I later learned that like many non-conforming women, they had, uh, during the homophobic red scare of the 1950s, they had erased wide swaths of their lies from their papers. Catherine, for example, was happy to talk about being conscripted into the culture of white supremacy as a child. She was happy to talk about her consciousness-raising education at Brunel, a small all-white women's college in North Georgia, where she encountered the liberating messages of the social gospel and the social sciences for the first time. Most of all, she emphasized the years in the 1920s she spent as Southern Student Secretary or leader uh, uh, for the YWCA. Absent from our conversations, however, was Catherine's long relationship with Dorothy Douglas and their association with the movements that made up the left uh, wing of feminism and the New Deal. Gone were the years after the publication of The Making of a Southerner in 1946, when she was cut off from much of her family uh, who were uh, who felt betrayed by her autobiographical revelations. Gone were the shock and terror of McCarthyism. Gone was the startling fact that Grace Wumpkin had named names implicating Catherine, and Dorothy in the communist movement, including in the Red Scare that shattered the life they had so carefully built. In order to fill in or at least interrogate these silences, I think I can say that I left no known stone unturned. I returned again and again to these early interviews. I interviewed their families and f- their family and friends. I scoured archives and attics for stray letters. I read between the lines of their extensive published and unpublished fiction and nonfiction. I plowed through local and organizational records. And I dug especially into the records of Bernal College and the national YWCA. The Brunel papers confirmed uh, the uh, vibrant intellectual culture that Catherine had described, but they also revealed that romantic friendships between women lay at that culture's core. In the decades that followed Catherine's graduation in 1915, those relationships were Uh, stigmatized and pathologized, ensuring that she would never write or speak publicly about her partnerships with women. For that reason, those exuberant, unselfconscious student records were critical to one of the challenges I faced, which was how to write about same-sex partnerships Without doing violence to the way my subjects saw themselves and wanted to be seen. A close reading of the papers of the YWCA, which was a chief conduit for the social gospel in the South, drove home the point that Christian faith and practice had not always been and do not have to be associated with reactionary politics. The WISE records confirm. Catherine's memories of working in tandem with an extraordinary group of young black women to lead an interracial student movement in the Jim Crow South. But they gave me a more intimate look at the fraught, but generative negotiations among women who are trying to work together in an atmosphere of unequal power relationships without models or guides at a time when in the North as well as in the South, they could barely find places even to meet together. Their efforts took place in the context of what is often called, what are often called the Roaring Twenties, an era of frivolous flappers and violence against Blacks and uh, radicals and immigrants. By following these women, however, I came to see the 20s also as laying the groundwork for the left turn that is usually attributed to the shock of the Great Depression, as well as for the student activism of the 60s, the white student activism of the 60s and 70s. In this search for sources, I also got some other lucky breaks. A friend of a friend stumbled across a bitter, furious memoir written by the sister's father that placed him right in the center of the violence committed by the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. A nephew gave me access to Grace's uh, excruciating late-life journals after telling me he had nothing of interest to share. The current owner of the remarkable home Catherine shared with her partner gave me access to the house and its history, which helped me to conjure up the texture of their, lives, their life together in a way that the written record did not allow. Perhaps most important, I managed to wrangle my way into possession of hundreds of records compiled by the FBI, which had surveilled Grace, Catherine, Dorothy, and their friends for decades. It took years of filing Freedom of Information Act requests and then suing the Department of Justice, but the FBI finally forked over. Um, records that uh, proved to be invaluable to my work. It drove me crazy to be so dependent on these uh, records, which had been um, so dependent on records that had been produced by the Red Scare, which wrecked such havoc on the documentary evidence in the first place, leading some of my subjects to bury or burn their papers and some of their descendants to refuse to speak to researchers to this day. In the end, however, uh, this tainted archive gave me information and insights without which I could not have written this book. It also alerted me to the dangers of the what has come to be called the surveillance state. I'll turn now to the interplay between the past and the present to how the sisters' stories speak to the challenges of our day. From the beginning, I was aware that the history of race, radicalism, and reaction I was writing about spoke to my own times, that's what Attracted, to me, attracted me to it in the first place. But I could not have imagined how explosively resonant that history would turn out to be now, both as inspiration and as cautionary tale. I was in the final stage of writing Sisters and Rebels as one of the country's most conservative Republican regimes took over all three branches of the North Carolina's government. My husband, the historian Bob Korstad and I were involved in the Moral Mondays movement led by the Reverend William Barber, which helped to blunt that takeover. We then watched in horror as Trump ascended to the White House. My book appeared in the spring of 2019. A year later, The pandemic coupled with police killings of African-Americans drove home the deep inequalities built into our economic, medical, and criminal justice systems. Multiracial protests hammered home the message of Black Lives Matter and toppled Confederate monuments in town after town. In response, white as well as black Americans began to think and talk about racism as uh, Catherine Dupree Lumpkin did in her own time, as in her words, a social economic psychological system that can only be overturned with uh, deep seated moral and structural change. At the same time, the social democratic ideals that animated the New Deal left began to uh, gain traction again. These developments exemplified exemplify what the great civil rights leader Ella Baker called a continuity of struggle. Yet I also find myself thinking about the ways in which the resistance to progressive movements regroups and reemerges in new forms. I feel that we are at a crossroads similar to the one Catherine and her allies faced in the late 1940s as they tried to expand the New Deal in the face of powerful forces of reaction. In that context, I'm struck more than ever by how history emerges out of and acquires its meaning from a dialogue between past and present. As I think about Sisters and Rebels now, it's clear that while I was laboring to reveal the past, I was also pursuing a series of moral, political, and intellectual projects inspired by the times I was living through. The first of those projects involved recovering a forgotten landscape of struggle for social struggles for social justice that were organic to the South, that involved blacks and whites, expatriates, as well as people who never left the region. My goal in that recovery is to provide for our times, what Catherine and Grace tried to provide for theirs. That is, a usable past for the battles we are facing in the South which is now and in some ways has always been a battleground region. The second project uh, telling these women's stories allowed me to pursue involved joining an ongoing conversation about white Americans and especially uh, white women can face up to and work through a legacy of slavery, segregation, and systemic racism. My aim is to drive home the point that women who are um, struggling to come to grips with issues of complicity and privilege can, as Virginia Woolf famously put it, think back through our mothers. That is, we can learn from women's history. We can see how often women like Elizabeth Lumpkin shored up white supremacy while expanding their own horizons. At the same time, we can find in her younger sisters and their allies models of how both gender and racial consciousness can be transformed. My third project involved lifting up the left feminist strand of the women's movement and thus challenging the habit of viewing feminism as a single issue movement uh, monopolized by the white middle class. The black and white activists who stand in that tradition then and now link women's emancipation to economic and racial justice and infuse feminist consciousness into movements that do not explicitly prioritize gender equality, especially battles for labor and civil rights and for a strong inclusive safety net. I talked earlier about the YWCA, which stands in that tradition. Here I want to elaborate on the role of left feminists in the New Deal coalition. (coughs) Excuse me. During the Great Depression, these activists tried to do something that the left wing of the Democratic Party is trying to do today in a time of crisis that made it impossible to ignore the precarity and inequality of American life and that melted traditional obstacles to government action. They fought to push the New Deal in a generous, expansive, inclusive direction. They did so in part by trying to shift the cost of the safety net onto the wealthiest Americans, the top 1%, and in part by extending the safety nets protections to blacks of both sexes and to marginalized white women groups that were originally excluded from the New Deal's landmark legislation. Catherine Lumpkin, her partner Dorothy Douglas and their allies were devoted to that effort, but they and their ideals occupy a mostly invisible position, even within the scholarship on women and the New Deal. Of course, uh, FDR, it is still towers over our understanding of that period. But historians have told us a good bit about the so-called maternalist women who led the children's and women's bureaus in the 1930s. They have also spotlighted exceptional women, such as uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Frances Perkins, Mary McLeod Buffoon, But social change requires an outside as well as an inside game. I think of the women in Sisters and Rebels as playing a special and little noticed outside game. They were independent writers and policy intellectuals who sought to leverage their expertise to influence government programs directly. But they were equally committed to joining forces with labor unions and grassroots social movements in order to act on a core ideal of the period, which was that white collar workers, such as teachers and social workers, should stand in solidarity with the blue collar working class, both black and white. That approach, which included both respect for expertise and solidarity across class and racial lines speaks directly to our historical moment. A moment when the gig economy is replacing all kinds of jobs so that even universities are uh, dependent on contingent labor, blurring the line between adjunct professors and fast food workers, a moment also in which a pandemic is revealing that we are all vulnerable, if not equally so, to a broken medical system and to just-in-time supply chains that are linked to pools of cheap labor in the global South that now figure in the American economy, much as the cheap labor U.S. South did in the Lumpkin's Day, a moment that calls out for bold government actions similar to those that the New Deal left hoped for but only partially achieved. So I'll end with uh, the fourth project this book allowed me to pursue. I said earlier that in writing uh, about the Lumpkin Sisters, I wanted to join uh, today's conversation about reckoning with. Uh, racism. Likewise, like them, I want to blur the line between writing and activism. All three of the sisters believed that human beings are creatures of narrative and that cultural scripts, i.e. the stories we tell ourselves about the world, are as critical to social change as our explicit political maneuvers. Elizabeth, the eldest, believed correctly that whether white Americans bought into the myth of the lost cause mattered. Catherine and Grace believed that the counterstories they were telling were political acts. At the core of those counterstories was a challenge to the tendency to view the South as a reservoir of backwardness and reaction that stands as an exception to American innocence and progress. Grace mounted that challenge most powerfully in her first novel, To Make My Bread, in which she put forward a view of the Southern Mountains that countered the the hillbilly stereotypes uh, that persist to this day. Catherine's autobiography challenged the typecasting of the South in even more complex ways. Central to her story of self transformation was the process of study and experience that allowed her to acquire a new understanding of history, a new narrative of the past. It was only when she learned about the South's history of progressive struggle that she could truly break free from the miseducation of her youth, because it was only then that she could reject her father's equation of Southern identity with white solidarity and supremacy. She could identify with a dissident multiracial insurgent South instead. In short, she did not have to deny her identity as a white Southerner, a native daughter in order to devote herself to building a different future for the region and the nation. I also uh, position myself as a native daughter and I wrote this book in the hope of telling my own counter stories about the South and about women and thus of taking my own place in the continuity of struggle. So uh, thanks again for having me and for giving me this chance to reflect on this book in the light of the strange and possibility-filled circumstances in which we find ourselves. I'll be happy to uh, hear your thoughts and try to answer any questions you may have.
2: Thank you, Jacqueline. So our first question is, Given your difficulty in gaining access to vital records that were required in order for you to write this book, do you think we'll ever have history books that objectively share America's stories to future generations in this country? Objectively? Objectively. Well,
1: (laughs) I, I think that the fact that the archives, I in my case, I, I think I faced particular challenges in getting access to the sources that I needed. But even um, in cases where you have hundreds and hundreds of boxes of people's papers, an overwhelming amount of government documents, and so on, the archives are always going to be incomplete because what is collected depends on who is doing the collecting. What is saved is dependent on what is considered important at the time. Um, we're now in a situation where um, s- s- the kind of rich uh, detailed letters that people used to write. They simply don't write anymore. And so that the, the you, we're in a glut of, inf- of digital information. How do you sort through millions and millions of emails, for example? So that's always going to be the case. And, it, and that means that the histories that we write are never going to be the last word. And they're going to depend... A, on the sources that we have, but B, on our own uh, way of seeing the world, the questions that interest us in the times that we're in. So I don't exactly think that the goal of history is objectivity in the sense of a kind of neutral, omniscient truth I think our goal is to be as honest and truthful as we can possibly be, and to be transparent about the perspective that we bring uh, to the history that we write.
2: And and kind of based off we talked about records, why was it so difficult to get the FBI records? Is, uh, is it unusual that you had to sue for access or do historians encounter that often?
1: They encounter that often. It's it's almost routine. I mean, not routine, but it's, it's very common for historians to go through a, a similar experience to the one that I went through. Um, the FBI drags, in my case, they sent me uh, hundreds of documents. I read through them. I took notes on them. I underlined them and found that everything of interest had been redacted. So I refiled. They sent me more documents with a few things unredacted. So I had to go through all of those again, comparing them to what I already had and so on. And, and that's very common and uh, and, uh I uh, but I think it is not so common, my experience in in suing the Department of Justice. It's a complicated story. I don't think I should try to get into it here. Uh, But I we won our case in the D.C. District Court and uh, the FBI agreed to mediation rather than appealing, which is what we would normally expect them to be to do. And if they had appealed, it would have been too expensive, too lengthy. I couldn't have carried on. But they agreed to mediation, and um, I uh, <laughs> I flew to uh, to D.C. thinking I would be meeting with some low-level bureaucrats, and turned out to be meeting with the top litigators of the Justice Department in a huge conference room. Me and my rumpled lawyer and 14 of them. And uh, I will never forget the moment when my lawyer pounded on the table and said, give, these, give this woman her documents. The American people deserve to know their own history. And that wasn't really the end of it. It went on after that, more back and forth, more back and forth, but finally I did, finally they did give me the documents that I most wanted.
2: Amazing. Were you, new question, were you shocked by what you learned from the FBI documents?
1: No, I wasn't shocked. Um, I, well, it's hard to, it's sort of hard to, to reconstruct my feelings about this process because it went on for so long and things were gradually and gradually revealed. Um, But I think one of the things, this didn't, this is, uh, I hope this isn't too much into the weeds, but one of the things that had puzzled me uh, all along was this question of, Grace had testified uh, before um, she had volunteered She had contacted Joe McCarthy and volunteered to testify uh, in the anti-communist hearings. And when I interviewed her in the 1970s, she said something to me that I found chilling, which was, she said, I told on my sister and her partner. Uh, I know that she thought that was a terrible thing to do, but I felt I had to do it. Well, when I finally got, uh, well, I you know I read the hearings that that she she was uh, she testified in secret hearings as well as open hearings. I couldn't get access to the secret hearings. In the open hearings, she didn't say anything about Catherine and Dorothy, so I could never figure out what she meant exactly and really document what that uh, betrayal consisted of. And it was only when I got the FBI documents and then the, um, the um, uh, private uh, hearings uh, that I was able to find out exactly what she said and when she said it.
2: Did the sister's differing moral views change the family's dynamic?
1: Yes um although it it's hard to w- reconstruct the dynamic of their um, so uh, their 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 parents uh, were were deceased before the the uh, all, all of this happened but they had uh, several, a number of brothers All one of whom, the one that they were closest to, and that I think would have been probably the most sympathetic to them, had died before, um, had died in the um, early 30s, I believe. The other brothers were very, very, very disapproving of uh, Grace and Catherine. They refused to read Catherine's autobiography, or they read it and pretended they hadn't read it. So they were pretty cut off from and alienated from their brothers. Now, Elizabeth was a different story. She was equally disapproving, but she did keep in contact with the sisters and kept trying to get them to come back to the church, to come back into the fold of the family and so on. So I think there's no doubt that having two sisters who took such uh, a radically different path than the rest of the family can't help but have uh, affected the dynamic of, of the family back in South Carolina. Uh, where they they mostly grew up after being born in Georgia, but the thing that I do know is about their family dynamic is that ha- these two, the existence of these two interesting aunts, had a big impact on the next generations, on the nieces and nephews, and the children of the nieces and nephews. Um, all of whom are the ones that I uh, have interviewed and know uh, have very different views than their, their parents and the older generation had and um, were uh, very much, uh, you know, befriended their aunts and, that, and Catherine and Grace kind of came back into the family in their old age, embraced by these nieces and nephews.
2: Do you, so with the two sisters with, you know, the, clearly the outliers of the family, were there any female influences on them or anything that helped to spark, you know, their, their um, activity uh, separate from the family? Separate from the family? Well, yes. Um,
1: well, first of all, I'll just say that I, I, d- I didn't hardly mention their mother at all, but uh, their mother had had a strong impact on them. Um, she didn't depart from her husband's views of race and politics and so on, but she had taught school before she married. She was, uh, they were very proud of her beauty and her learning. She read to them. She taught them to love books. Uh, Grace always said that it was her mother who made her want to be a writer, So their mother had an an impact on them. But then um, the uh, biggest impact that uh, that other women had on them were the uh, leaders of the YWCA, who traveled through the South in the 1920s to colleges in the South, building these uh, YWCA chapters, which were often the main uh, uh, center of student uh, extracurricular activity on campuses. And they were the ones who really introduced th- the sisters to uh, to the social gospel, the ideals of the social gospel. And they also introduced them to the, uh, the budding uh, interracial movement. Um, the other group of These are also YWCA women, but I mentioned that Catherine, when she was the head of the Southern YWCA and the Southern student YWCA in the 20s, worked with this group of Black women, um, Frances Williams, Julia Derricotte, and others, who were quite extraordinary women in their own right. And this was, of course, the first, experience that she had had of working on a basis of equality with educated black women, women who were you know, every bit as, if not more sophisticated and well-informed than she was. That was challenging, but that really had a tremendous impact um, on Catherine in particular.
2: Um, great. Our next uh, question is: You've probably mentored a lot of young historians. What is your advice for someone starting out in this work?
1: <laughs> you know, almost every time I've given a talk like this, somebody has asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> Our
2: minds want to know.
1: <laughs> it's a really a hard question, and and uh, what I what I Tend to say, kind of varies by the what's going on around me and what kind of mood I'm in. I, in a talk I gave a few weeks ago, I I just found myself saying, um, "Be brave, be kind, and do the work." <laughs> And stopped there. Uh, then, just recently, when I was giving the talk, the most recent talk I gave, I found myself think, talking about the real challenges that, that young people coming into the prof- profession face today uh, that we didn't face when I was coming into the profession. We certainly faced big challenges and, the, and challenges that remain Uh, I came into the university when uh, women were just being admitted to the professorate when there were virtually no African-Americans on the UNC faculty. Uh, So it was a time of of turmoil and struggle. But um, this uh, kind of corporatization of the university the starving of humanities departments and so on that we're seeing now uh, presents a whole a whole different set of challenges that I um, I think that the generation the upcoming generation is just going to have to rise to and 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 um, and I would go back to what I said earlier rise to bravely. And do the work.
2: After completing such a long-term project, are you taking a break? (laughs) What what will come next for you?
1: Oh, Well, you know, I didn't really take much of a break. uh, In the sense that as soon as I finished the book, I started... um, going around giving talks about it, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I was, I was actually in New York in, uh, it, I think it was March, uh, in early March, the last thing, the, almost the last time I've been out of my house, I was in New York just days before the country shut down. And, you know, I had to cancel everything else that I was planning to do. So that, if you call that a break, you know, that was certainly a, a break in my life, not the kind of break I was hoping for or looking forward to. Um, but um, I have found um, that I'm, I, I think this is, I think this is something that I share with a lot of people in the pandemic is that I feel I've got a lot of pro- little projects, small projects, and I have written some short essays. I have, uh, again, I've get given a, a, a talks like these. I still have students that I'm uh, working with and writing letters for. And, but uh, I find that uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not a, I, I feel like there's, I'm so, I had been so yeah. preoccupied with what's going, the suffering and the frightening events that were going on around me that I haven't been able to focus and concentrate in the way that I, that I normally can as far, far as what's next. I'm not sure. Um, I have some ideas, but I'm not committing myself to any big projects right now.
2: All right. Well, this will be our last question. Um, so we've talked about you know the the divergent moral foundations of these characters. Um, as a biographer, does your process or thinking change whether when you're writing about a subject and feeling a connection towards that subject? Do you Do you feel like, um, was the process different between writing about Catherine, Grace, and Elizabeth?
1: Oh, yes, yes. And that was really one of the real challenges of this book. Um, The challenge of writing about Elizabeth was simply the lack of of sources. And, um, but, because I I found her, even though I present her in, in, Today, I presented her as kind of a foil to the other sisters. But I actually find her to be a very interesting uh, figure in a lot of ways. Grace is certainly interesting, but she's also incredibly problematic. And I had to... So I met her and interviewed her in her old age. And in her old age, she was a very uh, bitter, suspicious, um, reactionary, politically reactionary uh, person. And I didn't want to read that impression of her back into her early life so I had to sort of had to struggle with that and I had to try to um look at Grace's uh the period her early life the period up until the 40s when she began this kind of um reverse, reversal of, of every rejection of everything she had believed in, which also was a very, really isolated her from everybody she had known. And so that she ended up being a very lonely, isolated figure, as well as a very uh, bitter and suspicious figure. But in her, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, she was uh, a really, Uh, I thought, a a, a very um, creative and courageous um, person doing things that were not easy to do and not things that she had been raised to do. So I tried to write about her in her her early period in a way that really, uh, in a way, Saved her from herself because she had rejected the work that she did in that early period. Well, if you believed her that her work was all, you know, not all of it, but that was written under the influence of the Communist Party and it was da da da, which it wasn't, then it would be very hard to predict, I mean, to uh, portray her as in her work. In the positive light that I, in which I tried to portray them.